This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with Eric Trexler from Force Point. Uh, a, a quick aside before we uh, we get started, Eric. Um, I play a couple of games of hearts every morning before I get started. And uh, right after we chatted a week or so back, Eric, the advertisement on the right side of my hearts page started saying, putting out force point ads. And that has kept up through today, I have to say, uh, which I find to be a very, very odd coincidence, but fortuitous. So uh, tell people who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm, I'm the vice president of sales for the global government's component of Forcepoint. Uh, we're one of the largest independently uh, held cybersecurity companies out there. Um, so I'm responsible for the public sector business across the five eyes, the UK, Canada, United States, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, for all of our products, which which are predominantly all, all cybersecurity, insider threat, and also cross-domain. Cool. So um, we were discussing a variety of things prepping for the show, but I, I had noticed, um, I think everybody who, who follows you guys noticed, we, we had this uh, impediment earlier this year from something called COVID-19. So you guys um, help in a help the government or multiple governments in a variety of ways, uh, not only during this situation, but especially during this situation. So can you explain how uh, Forcepoint helps government with uh, secure remote work? Because I know that was quite the uh, quite the topic. Uh, earlier this year, and I'm assuming behind the scenes, it still is. Sure. Well, first, I'd like to give kudos to the marketing team for getting the search engine optimization down. <laughs> Although I'm not sure how much force point you're going to buy, but obviously something's working. Um, but I, I think the important thing here is really a scenario setup. And I, I know in several of your podcasts, you've talked about the impact of COVID to your customers, you know, your listeners, people you consult with the government and everything else. But you know, since 9-11, the federal government really fixated on uh, continuous continuity of operations, but more from a physical perspective. So things, Mark, like fire, flood, earthquake, natural disasters, you know, the loss of energy supply, maybe even attacks on a, a facility, they've spent a ton of time on. But one of the things that came out in March, very, very obviously to, to anybody dealing with the government customer was they never planned from a business continuity perspective, most never planned on a situation lasting six, 12, 18 months where their employees couldn't go to a center, right? So they planned for this site to go away, 
lose power, somebody attack it, whatever. So you move your personnel to another site, you move your data processing to another site. What they never planned for was the employees, the workforce couldn't get to work. Um, and, and we saw this across the civilian, the DOD and the intelligence community, no more so than the intelligence community where, where the bulk of their work is done in a classified environment, SCIFs. Um, and, and what we needed to do with, with that is really look at, you know, how do we provide flexibility to government customers who are now working from home or really wherever, but certainly not inside the corporate data center. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes tremendous sense. And, and uh, you know, just anecdotally, I live about 15 minutes away from Ford Mead, yeah. and there are four major ways to get in, you know, north, south, east, west, uh, uh, Route 32, 197, 198, and something else, I forget which, I use 32. But but normally in drive time, drive time being anywhere from 6.30 to 9 in the morning, uh, you get on 32 and about two miles away from Fort Meade, the traffic drops to about five miles an hour. That has not happened in the last eight months. Yeah, so I mean, they, they initially, you know, anybody high risk can't go to the office, can't go to work. They had to set things up differently once they figured out what they were going to do. They went to shifts on and off, one week on, one week off, right? So, so processing capacity, capability went down. On the civilian government side, we saw customers go home and work from home with differing levels of success. I will tell you, for, for most of our government customers, they did a phenomenal job. It was a crash course on digital transformation for the U.S. government. Um, you know, when, when I when I look, you know, when I look at our commercial customers or even Force Point itself, we were what I call combat effective, 95% combat effective day one. I remember March 13th, March 12th really was the last customer event, the last time I was in the office. We just picked up and ran. We moved development operations, including access to source code and sensitive information. We We, we made that accessible to people at home. Um, we, we looked at how we're going to in, inspect what our people are doing, but the business just worked. In the government, we saw that in, you know, I've talked to different customers in, in different levels. So, so that's the setup for the pandemic and this crash course on digital transformation. They did an amazing job. I want, I want to be very clear there, right? It would have taken five plus years and millions of dollars of study studies to do what they did. But what we saw was a lot of VPNing into the, uh, the corporate data centers for the government. We saw a quick move to the cloud. One of the areas where we've spent a lot of time in the business we do, I mentioned cross-domain services, is remote telework for classified environments, right? So one of our, our products, and I don't want to turn this into a, a commercial or anything, but one of our products allows government customers working on multiple domains. Think about unclass and, and secret level classified information to be able to see on the same terminal VDI session effectively, they can see both of their systems, which allows them to work from wherever they are. They don't have to be in the corporate SCIF or data center anymore, as long as policy is okay. We saw multiple customers come up very quickly in that regard, where they can look at SIPR and NipperNet on the same box from wherever they are. We, we started the rollout across a couple of customers who weren't using it before. Um, shortly after the pandemic, there's an acquisition process. Um, but, you know, senior officers were now able to do their work from wherever, which really benefited them. How, how quickly was that ramp up for the, uh, the customers or the, 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 the newbies coming in? 
Yeah. So I'll tell you, it's, it's, you know, for customers who were using it, it was, it was pre- predominantly a policy change. Yes. You can take a classified or you, you can take a thin terminal, a thin client, um, a, a laptop home and access classified information here. Are we going to allow that? Typically before that was only allowed for the most senior of officers. Um, so it's, it's a policy change for new customers. It was a rapid acquisition process, which I would say on average took, um, I'm going to baseline just on a couple of sample customers. I would say three, three, maybe four months. For some of our communities, that's a heck of a long time. It is, but the acquisition process, which I know right. you've spent a lot of time on, oh, typically yeah. would take a year, year and a half, two years. We also have things like accreditation that you have to go through. Um, and we just saw these government customers make it happen because they had to. That was the most impressive point of it. They had to do it. And and this isn't easy technology, right? We're leveraging NSA's commercial solutions for classified to run dual encrypted tunnels to the, to the client. We're running VDI and we're running multiple classification levels. So th- this is tough stuff on the technology side. You know, we're still changing and working through things, but they did a much better job getting those critical users online quickly and, and reached um, initial operating capability, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a month or two, depending on the customer. Cool. Now, did you have similar situations with the civilian side of the universe? So, so the civilian side doesn't use classified information to the same extent, right? They have sensitive information, um, but not classified. So they're different accreditation uh, requirements. They're different processes. What we saw on the civilian side was a move to telework. And the civilian team, because of the way they operate with their data, and they've, they've, they've done it over the last probably decade, decade and a half, I found that the civilian customers were much more uh, ready for this and able to come online quickly and work from wherever. You'll, you'll see a lot of customers, like VA typically works remotely. So for them, I, I would expect it would have been much more like the commercial world. where They were, they were able to just work from where they were. The place we did see issues, customers who relied on VPN to get into the corporate data centers, you know, they had to bring VPN capability online very rapidly. We saw this in the DoD They, you know, I've talked to a number of customers where the, the amount of users went up tenfold in a day, right? And they had to deal with that. And they did have some performance degradation, but all in all, most customers got, you know, beefed up their VPNs. Um, or move to cloud-based, cloud-native-based services where they didn't have to home run from, you know, to the data center and then go out. Cool. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Mr. Trexler right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Eric Trexler of Forcepoint. Uh, Eric, what's your title there? So Vice President of Sales for Global Governments, which which is the Five Eyes Global Governments business. Okay. So uh, I, I want to uh, um, wrap up on the uh, secure work that you guys do. But I want to ask, are, are you a, a channel play? Uh, do they come to you? Do the feds come to you direct? Uh, are you working through integrators or all of the above? How do you, how do you play? It's it's really all of the above, right? So we we work direct with certain customers based on certain needs they have, um, based on the sensitivity of the data they're trying to protect or what they're trying to do. Um, We're we're entirely channel friendly, though. A huge uh, amount of our business does go through the channel. And we have a deep linkage into the 
integrators, the federal systems integrators of the world out there, um, based on the mission focus of our business, you know, they're usually running or involved in those mission programs. Cool. Yeah, it is. I would imagine from your end, it's really cool because you're neck deep. Um, well, we are, and we're well known for what we do. So, you know, back to your question, the customers come to us many times and say, we have this business problem. Can you help us? And usually it's getting access to data or moving data from one network to another. Um, or in the case of insider threat, which I think you want to talk about privileged yeah. users. How do, how do we understand that? How do we protect? And, and I, I, would, I would say we are the best in the business at doing well, that. Start by defining uh, insider threat. Yeah, so a lot of people think of the insider threat in the traditional espionage model, right? You, you have a spy coming in, they're going to slip a USB drive into the a Snowden thing, yeah. into a slot Snowden thing, and they're going to take data out. And, and, and that, that certainly happens. Um, but we also look at it from a harm to self, harm to others. How do we prevent soldier, sailor, airman, employee suicide? Looking for things that, that are, that are uh, determinants of, of change in behavior or intent that could impact the business. We also look at things like mistakes. How do you handle or understand when a well-intentioned employee is doing something that is inappropriate, but they either don't know it or they're just trying to get their job done. And, and I think the final piece on the insider threat, um, one of the things, I think it was a 2017, might've been the 2018 Verizon data breach report, um, said 81% of all breaches are compromised users. So now you have a user, we'll take you Mark for a second, right? You log in, your user identity is compromised. You have an adversary now logged in as you, appearing to be you, doing what you can do and you have no knowledge of it. You might even be sleeping. So how do we deal with that compromised user identity um, to protect information within the government or, you know, the business on the commercial side? Um, so insider threat is a huge user activity monitoring insider threat. It's, it's a huge space really around protecting corporate assets, really focused on protecting corporate assets and getting to what we say is moving left of breach, left of loss, figuring out bad behavior or ill intent prior to it happening and damaging the business. Okay. There's uh, something called privileged users. Where does that come into play here? Yeah. So when you look at privileged users in, 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 the, in the way many people think about it, these are, these are users who have the ability to do something. You know, a lot of times people will refer to privileged users as people have access to high value assets, systems admins, right? Those are the type of people who really have enhanced privileges that the adversary really wants to get to. Um, when I'm talking to government customers, a lot of the times they're talking about zero trust. They're looking at things like multi-factor authentication. They're looking at identity and access management um, type of technologies. We, we've seen a huge uptick in interest here in the government in the past couple of years, especially with COVID, um, single sign-on, things like that. But it's really down to who is the user? What do they have access to? And then as from a force point perspective, what we really specialize in and look at, once you know who you are, you're Mark Amtower, this is what you should have access to. We look at behavior and intent. What are you doing? Should you be doing it? Why are you doing it? Is it appropriate? And how do we deal with that? So privileged user abuse, you know, we, we did a study with, uh, Ponemon did a study for us. And, you know, 73% of respondents said that more users typically have more access than they need to get their jobs done. 
right? The level of risk caused by privileged users abuse or misuse of IT resources affects access to governance processes, according to 57% of the respondents. So it's a real problem out there. We want to free people to do their jobs effectively, but also understand what they're doing and making sure they aren't doing any things either intentionally or unintentionally that are malicious. Okay, but I mean, I, I, I read the uh, synopsis of the report, yeah. and there's also a, a, a situation where there's a bunch of people with privileged access who don't really need it. Um, so how, how do you, I mean, is there a way to establish a, a, a governance of this, a uh, checklist that uh, criteria that, that you need to meet in order to qualify and why isn't there one? Yeah. So this is really hard in a corporate environment, none more so than I'd say the federal government where you have hundreds of thousands, millions of users. I mean, these are the largest of enterprises and you have a, a lot of people that are that have to do things to do their jobs. I, I think there's a there's a compliance component and a risk component, and that needs to be balanced. Um, to the best of their ability, I, I believe I do believe in centralization. I also believe, you know, we, we look at things like automation and baselining a user. What is Mark Amtower doing today? What has his baseline looked like in the past? And and how do we address that. There are a couple of things that that you want to look at. I, I mentioned automation, right? So one of the biggest complaints we have out there is there is no way to look at all the alerts that systems fire off. So you're going to see more and more around machine learning and artificial intelligence, really understanding what is the user? What applications are they using? When are they signing in? When are they not? What is the appropriate level of security that should be applied? Because one of the things we've also noticed is the easiest route to getting a job done is also is often riskier than the ideal way to do it. And if you increase security too much, people are going to get their mission done in the government. You deal with the government your whole career, right? They're mission focused. These are, these are patriots who want to get their job done. They will find ways to do it. Security has to bend and adapt to make sure that they do it while we're making sure they're not doing things that they shouldn't do. Did you touch on the, Half of the government respondents reported that privileged users are vetted through background checks, right? So, in in some cases, yes. Yeah, but not not all. Uh, so, is 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 it more a matter of their job function that initially just automatically puts them in the privileged category? So, so I look at it at multiple layers. I mean, you mentioned the background checks. You know, in the intelligence community, we have clearances where you will go through a routine inspection every five, seven-ish years, right? But that's usually once and done, and then until your time for renewal comes up, which usually gets pushed, um, nobody's necessarily looking at you unless you flag somewhere or you self-report. We're starting to see a lot more effort and we're engaged in efforts around something called continuous evaluation. And this is really around classified you know, users who have clearances, um, but it applies elsewhere. How do you evaluate your employees between those periodic security investigations so that if I get a DUI tomorrow, how does the business know that my risk rating just went way up, Right. Or if I'm, I'm in, you know, if I'm hospitalized or I have a, a divorce situation or something like that. So continuous evaluation and some of the work that we're doing there and, and that the government is doing is looking at in a, in a more continual fashion, 
how are you or I, the employee, operating the business? Um, the next thing then, though, really is, okay, let's say we're good to go, right? No DUIs or backgrounds are clear. We're good employees. What behaviors are we exhibiting in the business? And we spend a ton of time here. How does our behavior change over time? Why does it change over time? Can we get to things like basic intent? Why is Eric all of a sudden pulling 100,000 files that he's never accessed before off a network resource? And then we're seeing an email go to somebody he's never emailed before, and he's moving those files to Dropbox probably a behavior that we want to look at and flag on. So how do you do that across hundreds of thousands or millions of employees? And that's the automation piece, but it's a multi-layered process. It's a really hard process. Back in the old days, a spy had to walk into the building. They had to either photocopy or steal something or take a Minox camera and photograph it, right? They had to leave the bit, get out of the building physically. Now we just reach in digitally. Cool. Um, all right. We're going to go ahead and Not take a cool. Uh, well, right. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, but but hope your, your, your continuous evaluation process. Well, let me ask one other question here. Sure. On the continuous evaluation process, are you monitoring just their activity on a government uh, computer, or can you or do you monitor uh, home use as well? So it, it varies by agency. But when we think of continuous evaluation in the context of the U.S. government, um, that is typically looked at as external data sources, criminal records, court records, financial records, things like that. So with my intelligence right. clearance, you know, I've had to do financial disclosures before and, and, and provide all my banking information and everything else, right? So they're looking at how do we bring that in so we can look at my bank accounts, my credit accounts. Did I make a large deposit? Did I, you know, did I make a large withdrawal and I have a DUI and those are loosely correlated? And then we fold those in or blend those in with observations in the work environment. Now, the government is typically not going to work, and, and this is a real, real question of our time here. The government is typically not going to install things on home, home owned assets, right? Bring your own device. But we're right. looking at it now because we have so many people working from home. So I've got to bring your own device, my own laptop that maybe my, my son is using for school sometimes and I'm using for work other times. What is the policy? How, what, what, is the right, what are the rights of the government? How do we respect the rights of the individual while protecting the individual and the organization from data loss, whether proper or improper, right? So it's, it's a balance. This is one of the big challenges of our time right now that we're working through. And it's going to take years to figure out what does that look like? I just talked to the CIO of uh, Nick Tam's PAC out in Paycom, Indo-PACOM yesterday. And they're having a big debate on, you know, bring your own device. What does it look like? And, and my perspective is issue everybody a device, right? And that works on a laptop. But what about a phone? Who wants to carry two phones around in 2021? Uh, unfortunately, I still see it occasionally, but um, I'm not one of them. Uh, we, we are going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll return with Eric Trexler right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Eric Trexler of Force Point, and we are talking about a variety of issues around the pandemic and secure work. Uh, so, uh, so Eric, there was another paper that you guys did 
uh, I think it was from your, uh, your blog, or maybe it was a white paper on disinformation in 2021. Can you take a dive into that, please? Yeah, each year we, we look at different predictions for the future. And it's one of our most popular marketing uh, um, activities we do from customer perspective. This year, we took a look at specific topics and, and I chose disinformation because I, you know, as I've, I've done the cyber game for, for quite, a, quite a while now. And one of the things I'm seeing as I sit back and think, Mark, is you know, I think disinformation is probably the biggest threat to democracy today. And as I looked at the elections and all the buzz, you know, being a cyber person, you think about adversaries breaking into your networks. But when you think about disinformation and some of the work that the Russian Internet Research Agency did and some of the others out there, who needs to break into the network if you can just you know, skew the user population's thoughts? Um, we spent a lot of time this year looking at voting, mail-in voting, electronic voting. You know, where are the risks? And, and honestly, disinformation, misinformation is probably highest at that, at that level. And it really gets down to trust. Who do you trust? What is trust? You know, how has trust changed over time? As we look at social media, we went from local to institutional to now distributed trust relationships. And people trust what they read. What they don't do a great job of, in, in my opinion, our opinion, is really understanding the sources and are they accredited? Are they authoritative sources? Are, is what they're reading factually accurate? How do they check that? The yeah, the fact checking aspect becomes quite quite iffy for a number of sources. So in in this study, did you touch on? I think you did uh, the uh, the Brexit stuff. So when the UK came up for the uh, Brexit, the exiting the uh, the European uh, whatever the hell it is, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that thing. There was a tremendous amount of very strange information circulating in Britain. Yeah, the reality is on the internet, you can pretty much put out whatever you want to, whether factually accurate or not. In the United States, we have you know the concept of the First Amendment, the concept of free speech. And we do have some controls, especially around, I'll go to elections, because that's an area where, where we, we definitely have some controls on what you can say on TV, radio, media. But social media doesn't have the same controls. You, you can literally say whatever you want. And, and the platforms get to dictate what's put out there or not. And we, we saw that in Brexit, where there was a huge disinformation scheme, um, which uh, I forget who made the quote at this point. But, you know, there, there was a quote, the greatest electoral fraud pre- perpetrated in Britain for more than a century. The bottom line is with social media, if you want to change the narrative, all you have to do is put something out there, get people to believe it and spread it, and just continue to support that information, right? Fabricated information intertwined with legitimate information becomes believable. It's hard to authenticate, right? The Biden laptop, Hunter Biden, I think Bo Biden's laptop, it was, it was one of the Biden yeah. sons, forgive me. The laptop was stolen. We have emails. Well, of course they're emails. It's a laptop. But then you bring in emails and you, you put in the right context, the context that you want to tell the narrative that you want to tell. And all of a sudden now we have a laptop. The laptop has emails on it. And oh, by the way, here are a bunch of emails. People start to believe 
what the emails say, even though they may not have been emails ever on the laptop because we're linking that together. So it's really important to make sure that you can independently validate legitimate information. Who needs to hack into a system if you can just get into the voting system, if you can just change perceptions of the mindset and the mindset of, of, of readers or listeners? Right. And you just don't you have nobody asking, well, gee, where did they find the laptop? Did it just happen to be sitting on a park bench and somebody who's. It's, yeah. yeah, it's so difficult. How do you do it? You know, so if, if you think about like things like the commonality, think about, uh, you know, The Rock or Justin Bieber. Think about President Trump, your local HOA community, the Russian Internet Research Agency or ISIS. They're all using the same techniques. They're all learning from each other what works, the same platforms. They put their message out there to skew public opinion or change people. Um, And they're all rewarded with record sales, coercion and influence, votes, disruption, confusion, whatever their goals are. And to, to us, it's the new battlefield, right? Nation states are using it. Everybody's using it. It is the new battlefield. Okay. It's a frightening proposition. It really uh, is. Number one. Uh, buried in, in, the, uh, in the middle of that white paper, there was a uh, uh, 2020 cybersecurity predictions. Do you have predictions uh, uh, moving forward? So I did this one. This, we, I think right. we... We, we did about six. We, uh, okay. I'm trying to remember some of the others talked about um, insider threat. And, and, and I'd have to, honestly, I'd have to go back and look at them again. Okay. We, we did them in the early fall and uh, I haven't revisited necessarily. Yeah, other than the one cyber, I wrote. Cyber, internet biased. Yep. And machine learning. Um, I think we're a couple. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, yeah. I spent most yeah. of my time. I mean, you will see machine learning continue to take off um in in the business along with artificial intelligence to me that was that was an easy one okay all right we're going to take our uh, our final break here you're listening to amtower off center on the federal news network i'll be back with eric right after this matthew huh? oh sorry it's okay i just need you to listen to me i know that a lot of times mom it might not seem like i'm listening to you but i am i hear you And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. In these uncertain times, Federal News Network can help you navigate your agency's response to coronavirus. Download our app and read our coronavirus resource page with the latest news and information on your agency's evolving telework, pay and leave policies, acquisition guidance, and what this all means for your TSP. We are here to serve you, the dedicated federal employees and contractors who continue to serve your mission. The Federal News Network app, available on the App Store and on Google Play. 
Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today again with Eric Trexler of Force Point. Um, Eric, you were talking about uh, you know kind of the advent of this the 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 new battlefield. What do you mean by this? Yes, yeah, so I think we're going to see that conflict and wars and interaction between nation states changes as we, as we go forward. You'll see similar tactics on the social media side between your social media icons and nation states. You win the war by winning the web, the mindset of the people. Controlling the narrative, um, I believe, is going to be a big part of the battle. So if you think about, Mark, World War II, right? You know, we had Pearl Harbor, we had the Battle of Britain, Poland, France, you know, Europe, everything got overrun. From 1939 to 1943, there were a lot of questions out there about how the Allies were doing. But Churchill in the UK controlled the narrative around the Battle of Britain. Roosevelt here in the press controlled how we were doing. You saw things like the Doolittle raid on Tokyo, a couple of, of bombers, B-25 bombers taking off a carrier, really not doing any damage whatsoever to Tokyo. But in the hearts and minds of the Americans, we were able to strike fear and show that we were taking the offensive. Imagine if we had social media back then and the adversary, the Germans and the Japanese during the war could update or, or really pollute the minds. We had Tokyo Rose and we had, you know, some radio out there. But if they could really get to and pollute the minds of people by taking factual data, combining it with, with inaccurate data, it's super cheap. Social media, super cheap, global reach, highly effective. One person can run hundreds, hundreds of, of bots, of personas. You know, you can use artificial intelligence and machine learning to do it. You can run disinformation as a service. This is going to be a huge part, and it's already in, our, in the way we engage in conflicts with other company, countries. Both the U.S. does it and other countries do it to get into the hearts and minds. So this is something you're going to watch in the future. As I like to say, disinformation has become the new information in many ways. It, it, it boggles the mind how many forms this can take and how many platforms can be created. Um, you know, we, we have, uh, uh, depending on your point of view, you know, Fox News is on the right side of the spectrum, CNN is on the left side of the spectrum, but now we have a couple of networks on the right side that are, are making Fox look more like a moderate network. And uh, it, it, doesn't look like the new networks are doing anything but purporting uh, rumor-esque stuff with zero fact-checking behind it. Well, and even within the in the in the uh, media groups, how do you tell the difference between a news report and an opinion piece? Because these news channels, these all-day news channels, now have you know both components, and they're not easy to tell. It's, it's really hard to get factual information so that you can make decisions. I'm going to go back to earlier in the, in the show here. We, I, I mentioned trust, yeah. right? How, who do you trust? How do you understand trust? You know, when it was local and you went to the local baker, you knew, you knew Sally who was going to bake something in your village a couple hundred years ago. You knew she made a good loaf of bread. And you also knew her well enough that if she was telling stories about some other family, you knew she liked to talk a lot or she was typically dead accurate. Now that we've got this distributed trust model or lack of trust, it's really going to be a problem going forward. What do you believe? 
it um yeah it, it's it's an insane world i wonder what tim berners lee thinks at this point um you know what have i unleashed in this pandora thing yeah it's it's technology it can be used for good or evil right or yeah i mean it it, it it's just a tool it so is just a tool one one last item i want to touch on before i let you go and that is everybody's most favorite or least favorite uh, topic of the day. And that is, uh, uh, we're actually recording this on December 1. And CMMC technically rolls out today. Yes. Well, <laughs> is it a steamroller or what? <laughs> well... Uh, there, as you said, there are definitely opinions out there on CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. Um, I'm a big proponent of it. I've had Katie Arrington on our podcast. She's a ball of fire. She is pushing harder than any government employee I've ever worked with. And when I look at CMMC and break it down, the, the intent is really to protect government contractors better than they are protected today. You know, what we, we deal as a, as a commercial company, we deal with a ton of government contractors. And, and we're not just talking the big systems integrators, somebody who may make a bolt or a widget for an aircraft. And the ability for a nation state to conduct espionage or what many people forget often is sabotage operations. Imagine the new F 22 or F 35 fighter jet and a part was mis, you know, purposely misconfigured or, or designed incorrectly to break under high stress, and, w- and we have a pilot in combat. That is a serious problem. So CMMC is five levels. Um, it's going to impact you know, 300,000 estimated companies across the DIB. And when I look at the levels, the, the, you know, basic cybersecurity is level one. Practices are performed at least in an ad hoc manner. I don't know. It's 2020, Mark. I've been in cybersecurity a long time, but I think every company in America, every company across the globe should practice basic cybersecurity. Right. I don't see that as being, you know, a crazy effort. Um, And and there's limited requirements there. That's going to hit, I think, 85% of the DIB companies out there. Level three is where it gets more serious. That's 15,000 estimated companies. And, And this is where, you know, if you look at the description of the level three process, Processes are maintained and followed. That sounds good to me. That sounds like something we should do. It sounds like a NIST directive from a decade ago. So it is. When you, when, when you look at NIST 800-171, how do you protect uh, uh, on non-federal systems controlled unclassified information? When you, when you look at some of the other NIST directives out there, really what CMMC is doing is, is putting a process in place where we're going to audit that you're following some of the NIST requirements. They're all good requirements. You can't follow them all. And I don't want to spend, I don't want to spending too much time on compliance. We've got that risk versus compliance. And I, I lean towards risk continuum, but you have to be in compliance with certain things that just make sense. You want to drive your car. You should probably have safe tires, turn signals, a seatbelt and some airbags and a driver's license. That's compliance to me. Right. Yeah. I didn't mean to make light of it by referring to it as a steamroller, but. Oh, no, I don't think you did. They are, they are steamrolling. And I love the fact that they are because it's 2020. 
we're almost in 2021. Well, it, it's a weird thing. I, I've been involved indirectly in cyber computer security since the early 90s. I was on the board of advisors for the National Computer Security Association, not because of any technical knowledge, but because they needed a marketing guy. So it's been around here forever, but it wasn't funded in the 90s to any appreciable extent, even though it was even then a, uh, a, a relatively warm issue. So it, yeah. like, like you, you know, it's, it's about damn time somebody did something. So, and, and I think on the funding side, there are still a lot of questions. They talk about allowable and reimbursable costs to some extent. Um, you know, I, I think the fact that we have and this is just my opinion on this one, but the fact that we have these levels and they're going to be written in and there are allowable and reimbursable costs should make the playing field roughly level where prior to CMMC, if, if you had a great cybersecurity um, uh, protection capability in your organization, but it cost you an extra 5% over your competitors and your price was 5% higher, yep. that, that wasn't winning you the deal especially on, you know, LPTA acquisitions, right? So now that they all have to be level three, you know, now you're looking at, okay, who can get processes maintained and followed? Who can meet these compliance requirements at the lowest cost? But they're independently audited too. So it's not just an an, an organization saying, yeah, we do it. It's an independent auditor coming in and assuring that something is good. I don't want to go to a doctor that doesn't have a proper medical license, you know, we shouldn't buy product from people who can't protect it. Point. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think for lessing on CMMC, um, I, I would say, you know, I, I, I think over time, the benefits, we lose so much in this country and across this globe. Um, you know, it's 57 to $109 billion in 2016 was estimated lost by the Council of Economic Advisors of intellectual property to other countries. To, to theft, uh, malicious cyber activity. It's time we do something. We have to take cybersecurity seriously. But I really appreciate the time today and the discussion. It's been great. I've enjoyed it as well. So thank you for joining me. This is not my day job. If you notice, we discussed during the, uh, the show this thing called the pandemic and working from home. Uh, For the contractor community, that means replacing your traditional networking venues with online venues. Uh, For the past 10 years, I have been coaching companies and individuals on various aspects of leveraging LinkedIn, particularly social selling. If that resonates with you, drop me a line, markamtower at gmail.com, and we can discuss. In the meantime, thank you for listening to Amtower. Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.